I've got two birds. Her name is Lemoncello, and his name is Lorenzo. They're beautiful. We think they're beautiful. You do know that, like, birds like that are, like, a more than, like, a lifetime commitment because they live forever. Well, okay, so she she is just a parakeet. So okay. she is not going to live forever. But I am well aware that, like, regular parrots and other kinds of parakeets, like the crazy kind in Australia, outlive you. And I have a lawyer friend who does estates and trusts, and he has done more <laughs> than one trust for a parrot because the parrot will outlive the owner. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, it's a thing. Parrot law is absolutely a thing. That is Mark Joseph Stern. He knows a lot about the law. And not just parrot law. Mark covers the Supreme Court for Slate. And, you know, it seems like the last time the court was really in the news was when former President Donald Trump suggested that maybe the Supreme Court could decide election 2020. Well, that did not happen. But now, a few months after that really contentious and important election... The court is hearing a case that could determine who wins a lot of elections in the future. On Tuesday of this week, the Supremes heard oral arguments in a case called Brnovich v. Democratic National Committee. And the ruling on this case, it could affect the power of the Voting Rights Act, which is a big deal. You are listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. And this week, we are talking about the threats to the Voting Rights Act. I'll let Mark lay out the specifics of that Supreme Court case. This is a case that really goes to the heart of the Voting Rights Act, or what is left of the Voting Rights Act, Uh, and it involves two Arizona laws. Um, The first law nullifies ballots that are cast outside of the voter's precinct. So if you show up to the wrong precinct, even if you're in the right county and state, your vote doesn't count. That's the first law. The second part of this case concerns another law, which deals with an issue so partisan that it goes by two different names. What Republicans call ballot harvesting and everybody else calls ballot collection. And this is a law that criminalizes the activity of uh, helping to collect absentee ballots and drop them off with election officials. So Arizona has now criminalized that practice, said if you do that, even if it's not fraudulent, it is a felony. Um, And both of these laws have been challenged in court under the Voting Rights Act. Both of these laws have a dramatically disproportionate impact on racial minorities. And the question for the Supreme Court is, first of all, you know, are these laws actually legal? And if they are, like, what is left of the Voting Rights Act? I want to get into more of what is left of the Voting Rights Act in a bit, because a few years ago, a good chunk of it was kind of nullified. But before that, I want to talk about what the big arguments both sides are laying out to support their stances in this case in Arizona. Yeah. So um, the Arizona attorney general is basically leaning hard on preventing voter fraud. He's saying, look, uh, we're really, really scared of voter fraud, even though we have not seen any in the state of Arizona. We think it could be out there and we think it could affect us. So we have got to make sure that only the people who fill out their ballots are actually returning them. We think that harvesting ballots is going to lead to some kind of shenanigans. Uh, and also we think that, you know, we assign voters precincts for a reason. We want to have an orderly election. And uh, if they mess up, then that's just their fault. The other side says, okay, well, hold on a minute. 
there has not well, actually <laughs> been fraud in Arizona. And uh, you actually have allowed various forms of ballot collection for quite some time in Arizona, and it has not been exploited or abused. Instead, mm. it has been a lifeline, uh, especially for uh, Hispanic communities and Native communities where uh, the residents do not have transportation to the polls. They might have difficulty getting to the post office. Mail collection is, is inconsistent. Um, and so these groups have really relied on community activists going around doing the work and helping get these ballots to election officials. With the precinct yeah. question, I, I, the, the, the challengers here are saying, why does it even matter if somebody votes out of precinct? I mean, the, the whole idea of precincts, it's sort of artificial. Um, like, you know, you're people, still like in the same county or town. You're, right? you're still in the same county. You're still in the same state. You're getting the same ballot uh, almost always. And, and so like, what is the difference here? And, and I just want to add, there is a lot of evidence that for reasons that are very unclear, Arizona constantly shuffles around precinct assignments in, huh. uh, in counties that have lots of minority voters. They're constantly getting reassigned new precincts. And sometimes they're really far away. Sometimes people will have to drive past a precinct that's closer to them to get to the one they're assigned to. Interesting. Uh, w- whereas in those counties that are majority white, they really don't have this problem. So the challengers here are saying, look, we get that you want to run an orderly election, but there's really no point to this law. And moreover, it looks pretty suspicious that you're cracking down on out-of-precinct voting at the same time that you're making it really hard for racial minorities to even figure out what their precinct is. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah. So this case is yet another case in front of the Supreme Court that uh, raises some big questions about what the Voting Rights Act of 1965 can or can't do. Tell folks briefly what the Voting Rights Act of 65 is and what it does. Yeah, uh, an incredible landmark civil rights law that really broke the back of Jim Crow in the South um, because after Reconstruction, in theory, black people had the right to vote. But in practice, southern states passed all of these laws, you know, the literacy test, right, the grandfather clause that pretended to be race neutral, but were obviously targeting black people. So Mm. the Voting Rights Act came in. And in addition to banning those really blatant voter suppression measures, um, it required these southern states to submit their election laws to the Justice Department in Washington, D.C., whenever they wanted to change them. So if you want to close a bunch of polls in Alabama or you want to make it harder to register to vote in Georgia, yeah. under the, the feds original... feds have to okay it. Yeah, the feds have to okay it and say, okay, this is not going to place a terrible burden on minority voters. And that worked really, really well. And it, it, it dramatically increased minority participation in elections. And Congress continually reauthorized it by huge, almost unanimous majorities. And that's just half of the Voting Rights Act. There's another portion of this act that allows uh, courts to look at the effects of some of these rules after the fact. Yeah, that's right. So there's also a part of the law that says, okay, well, if the Justice Department can't or won't come in, uh, federal courts also have the power to look at these voting restrictions and assess whether these voting restrictions have a, a disproportionate impact on minority voters. You know, if they end up making it harder for black people to vote than for white people to vote, courts can block those laws. And crucially here, it's important to note, courts don't have to find evidence that these laws were most 
motivated by racism. So courts don't have to find that a politician went to the floor of the legislature and said, I hate black people and I don't want them to vote and that's why I wrote this bill. Instead, courts just have to figure out what the impact of the law is, what results the law has, and if those results are racist, the court has to block the law. Yeah. And so we should point out here, these two big parts of the Voting Rights Act, half of that is gone. Preclearance was basically knocked out of the Voting Rights Act, what, six or seven years ago? Yeah. In 2013's uh, Shelby County versus Holder, a five to four Supreme Court decision, uh, the, the five conservative justices dismantled the preclearance requirements. They took away the Fed's power to block these laws before they took effect and, and basically said this is a violation of states' rights. They talked about the mm. equal dignity of states. And so we're really just left with the results test at this point in terms of having an effective tool. Yeah. And so this results test, if the Supreme Court decides a certain way on this case in front of them now, Brnovich versus DNC, the results test could be gone as well? Yeah, pretty much. Uh, and, you know, there's two ways I think the court could approach this. It, it could just say, basically, the results test is gone, you know, where we're, we're just gutting the results test. Or it could pretend to uphold the results test, but make it impossible for anyone to actually prove that an election law has racist results. So they could do it openly, they could do it quietly, but either way, it would be pretty devastating for, for voting rights. Mm. You know, something that happened... After the Supreme Court basically knocked out preclearance, we saw a bunch of laws passed that had the effect of depressing turnout. What did those laws look like and how widespread was that over the last six or seven years? incredibly widespread. The, the, the biggest uh, surge of voter suppression laws since the days of Jim Crow, since before the Voting Rights Act. So they were really draconian voter ID rules where you could vote with a gun permit but not a student ID. Um, slashes to early voting, often targeting counties and regions that have a, a majority of black people or a majority of Latino residents. Hundreds and hundreds of poll closures followed in the immediate wake of Shelby County the euphemism for this is consolidation. State lawmakers say, oh, we are consolidating the polls so that we have more efficient elections. And guess which communities see their polls consolidated. Mm. Now, was there also so like there was talk of like the purging of voter rolls a while back. Is that part of this, too? Yes, And, and like absolutely. other things like signature matching. There's a long list of this stuff, it seems. Yes, all that stuff is similarly uh, stuff that should have been blocked by preclearance, stuff that probably would have been blocked before Shelby County. But in the aftermath of that decision, the feds were powerless to stop it. And so all of these states became sort of laboratories for voter suppression. There was a race to the bottom among lawmakers to see who could suppress the most minority votes. Yeah. You know, a lot of Republicans, a lot of anybody might say, well, this is not a race to the bottom. This is not racist. We want to prevent fraud. And these things we're talking about now, it is not a literacy test. It is not a grandfather clause. Define those two things from back in the day. Tell us how different it is from what's happening now or how similar. 
Yeah, so a literacy test basically was a, a, an exam that was given almost exclusively to black voters to prove that they could read and write before they cast a ballot. And these tests had ridiculous questions that are impossible to follow. You can actually Google them and read some of them. They are absurd. Um, the whole point was to trip up black people. Like, it was impossible to pass a literacy test. Um, and so it just meant that if you were black, you could not vote. Uh, a grandfather clause was similar, but maybe even more overt because it meant if your grandfather was eligible to vote, then you are too. Of course, black people's grandparents, especially when the VRA was passed, they were sla- they were enslaved people or they were crushed under the boot of Jim Crow. Of course they couldn't vote. I mean, if they tried, the KKK would literally murder them. So that's how these laws work. They were really effective in stopping voting. Obviously, a voter ID law is not the exact not same that, thing. Right? Right? It's, it's not that. Yeah. Let's be honest. Let's be open about this. It's not as bad, but it's still pretty bad because if you look at the process of crafting these laws, for instance, in North Carolina, when North Carolina passed a voter ID law literally hours after the Shelby County decision came down, um, this this law allowed IDs um, that were disproportionately held by white people, identification cards that were more likely to be held by uh, people with higher socioeconomic status, people who um, had had jobs, maybe with the state government, with higher education, and then banned IDs that were more likely uh, to be held by minorities. Um, and and the, the Fourth Circuit, looking at this slew of laws, said that the North Carolina had targeted black people with almost surgical precision. So no, it's not a literacy test, but it's still really bad. Yeah. You know, there's going to be a lot of folks hearing this conversation who say, well... Must not be that bad because I saw all those black voters in Georgia and Georgia went blue and Donald Trump lost. And we saw record turnout in minority communities this last cycle. Must not be that bad. Well, it is still bad. <laughs> and okay, I think we, we have to measure the badness on a sliding scale. Is it as bad as, as the pre-Voting Rights Act days? No, of course not. Um, but is it as good as we had it during the Voting Rights Act's reign, you know, when actually the feds could come in and protect voting rights? No, it's actually a lot worse. It's harder for black people to vote today than it was in the 90s. We are moving backwards right now. And the fact that we saw so many black people voting in, in places like Georgia, that is a testament um, to the black community's ability to organize and overcome these huge hurdles that white people just don't face. It doesn't mean there's not a problem. It just means that, that black communities were able and willing to come together and devote a huge amount of time and resources to making sure that they could actually cast a ballot. Yeah. Do we know at all how the Supreme Court might actually rule on this? I was reading that Kavanaugh might surprise people. What's up with like where these uh, justices will land? So, of course, it's always hard to read the tea leaves. Um, but I think we can conclude pretty clearly that the court's going to uphold both of Arizona's laws here. There's no sign that any of the conservatives thought these laws violated the Voting Rights Act. Um, the big question is how far they will go when they write that decision. You know, there's all this evidence that the laws do have a disproportionate impact on racial minorities. So how do the conservatives write this opinion? Do they say, we see all of this evidence, but we don't care? Do they say, mm. we see all of this evidence, but we balance 
balance it against the state's interests in protecting elections? Or do they say, you know, we don't even care about this evidence in the first place and it shouldn't belong in court because the Voting Rights Act is illegitimate and illicit and none of it should exist anymore. So it sounds to me like they might try to find some kind of middle ground where they uphold these laws. They keep alive the idea that maybe some other voter suppression law might be too racist to pass muster, um, but they just leave that door open. And so they don't crush the Voting Rights Act this time. They just hobble it and and give it a stay of execution. Stay of execution. Wow. (laughs) Um, I have, and I don't know if this is a fully formed question, but I keep wondering how much all of this goes back to literally Reconstruction and how in many ways, not just when it comes to who gets to vote, America never finished Reconstruction. Yes, all of it. It all goes back to Reconstruction. Um, There's simply no question um, that this was a a huge debate during Reconstruction that just never got answered. Because Mm. before the Civil War, everyone agreed that the right to to decide who can vote in an election was a right awarded to states, right? It was Mm. like, if Virginia doesn't want these people to vote, then Virginia gets to say they don't vote. After the Civil War, and in Congress, when Congress was debating the, the Reconstruction amendment, Amendments, um, there was a huge discussion and, and a lot of disputes about, well, should we sort of nationalize the right to vote? Should we make a new system where instead of states regulating who gets to vote, states have to step aside, let everybody participate, and give the federal government the power um, to protect that equal suffrage? And th- it just never really got answered. If you read the 14th and 15th Amendments, you won't find a clear answer to this question. It's not super clear whether whether the states or the federal government have the power to protect the right to vote. It's not clear exactly where the right to vote comes from. It's all very hazy. It's because the people who wrote these rules, you know, they were mortals. They were busy. They were confused. They were racist. They had all kinds of different opinions. They never settled on an answer. And we are still paying the price today. Mm. Cue Shirley Bassey singing history repeating. That was friend of the show, Mark Joseph Stern. He covers the Supreme Court for Slate. All right, when we come back, Mark and I are joined by a mutual friend to play my favorite game, Who Said That? Stay tuned. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Warby Parker. Warby Parker is committed to providing exceptional vision care online and in stores, offering eyeglasses, sunglasses, eye exams, and contact lenses. Try Warby Parker's free home try-on program. Order five pairs of glasses to try at home for free for five days. There's no obligation to buy. Ships free and includes a prepaid return shipping label. Try five pairs of glasses at home for free at warbyparker.com slash minute. This message comes from NPR sponsor CarMax. Finding the right car takes time. And with the new Love Your Car Guarantee from CarMax, you can take your time to make sure you've found the perfect car for you, starting with a 24-hour test drive. Drive it to work, school, and the grocery store before you buy. And if it feels right, you've got a full month and 1,500 miles to keep on driving with their new 30-day money-back guarantee. Learn more about the new Love Your Car Guarantee from CarMax at CarMax.com. The news is about more than what just happened. You need to know why it happened, who made it happen, how it's felt in the communities you care about. NPR's daily news podcast, Consider This, gives you all of that, with context, backstory, and analysis on a single topic every weekday. 
It's not just information. It's what the news means. Consider this from NPR. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm your host, Sam Sanders. Joined for this segment by two great guests who are going to introduce themselves. Y'all go ahead. Hi, I'm Mark Joseph Stern. I cover Courts in the Lot Slate. Hi, uh, I'm Madeline Ducharme, and I'm a production assistant for Slate Podcasts, working on a new history podcast uh, that you'll learn about sometime this year. So Madeline uh, didn't tell listeners that she was an intern at NPR West years ago, and look at her now. In the big leagues, baby. (laughs) Yeah, I'm trying my best. This was all a long game just to get on It's Been a Minute with you, Sam. It worked, and I admire your commitment. (laughs) (laughs) So in the before times, were y'all like cubicle buddies? Oh, yeah, totally. We had Well, we had an open floor plan, so we were all forcibly cubicle buddies in a sense. Yeah, yeah. and I was cubicle buddies with Mark's dog whenever uh, she would stop by the office, which was pretty often, actually. Yeah, I'd smuggle her in. Um, <laughs> and also, there was a lot of research, fascinating historical archival research going on at your desk, if I recall correctly. And sometimes I would kind of sneak by and just kind of get a glimpse at the screen to see what like horrifying slow burn article you dredged up from the 80s about some white nationalist rally in Louisiana that everyone's forgotten about. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, uh, I was doing that a lot. I'm glad that you caught those moments of me hyper-focused on work for Slow Burn and not the moments I was on Twitter. (laughs) (laughs) Never, Uh never saw it, not even once. Well, the fun thing about spending time on Twitter is that it kind of helps prepare you for this game that we're about to play. Uh, The game is called Who Said That? I share three quotes from the week of news, and you got to guess who said it. And if you spend your entire week scrolling Twitter, you'll probably have a better chance of winning than not. There are no buzzers. There is no referee. I'm really bad at keeping score, but it doesn't matter because the winner gets nothing. Shall we? Let's do it. Absolutely. Okay. Here's the first quote. Vaccine, 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 vaccine. Because once you're dead, then that's a bit too late. It's Dolly Parton. It's Dolly Parton. Dolly Parton this week got the vaccine, the vaccine that she helped pay for, uh, pay for the research at least. And she sang a vaccine rendition of her song Jolene while she was getting the shot. Vaccine, 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 vaccine. I'm begging of you, please don't hesitate. Did y'all see the video of Dolly? Oh, of getting the course shot. I beautiful. did. Can I tell a little a little personal story myself here? Yeah, Dolly Parton yeah. was the third person I ever saw in concert when I was a child in Tallahassee, Florida. The first two were Cher and Elton John. In oh, retrospect, wow. my, my mom God. calls it the Gay Icons Tour. <laughs> you are a perfect gay. <laughs> it was oh my goodness, incredible. I, I was going to say, I watched that video and Dolly in the video does the thing that I do when I get vaccines, which is like... Just get super chatty. <laughs> and I hope this don't look like it does on TV where it looks like they're driving an ice picking yarn. Okay. She's just like us. Exactly. All right, that point goes to Madeline. Congratulations. Thank you. Here's the next one. It reminds me. I was once in Russia. I ran into Gorbachev and he said, Mr. Movie Star, are you nervous? I said, no, Mr. Gorbachev, I'm not nervous. He goes, well, remember how much a polar bear weighs? I say, polar bear? He says enough to break the ice. That's the last time I've ever seen Mikhail Gorbachev. Who said that? It's a famous action star. Arnold Schwarzenegger? Keep going. Sylvester Stallone? Shorter. Tom Cruise. Yes. Tom Cruise? (laughs) What was he talking about? Do I still get a point even though it was my third try? You get a point. You beat me, so you You get the point. (laughs) 
So this is a video of actually a fake Tom Cruise. And this audio is of a fake Tom Cruise. Have y'all seen these oh, deep fakes? Oh, yeah. Okay, yes. It scared me. I, the idea of it scared me, so I didn't watch it. <laughs> Ran into uh, Gorbachev. <laughs> he said, you know, Mr. Movie Star, are you nervous? I said, no, Mr. Uh, Mr. Gorbachev, I'm not. I saw it trending on Twitter and I was also too scared because I was like, what? I mean, not that I'll ever be famous or important enough to have a deep fake made of me, but what if, you know, just think about the possibilities. Mark, I'm going to make one yeah. of you right after this. Watch out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you have the technology? No. <laughs> Absolutely <Okay>. not. <laughs> so this deep fake video of Tom Cruise allegedly telling a story about Gorbachev, it's all fake. It came out last week uh, with a few TikTok videos. They've been viewed millions of times. They're super real and creepy. And I don't know. I'm just like, okay, we are entering the black mirror. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so the game is tied. It's one to one. This last quote is for all the marbles. Here we go. One day you'll wake up and see how everybody went and forgot about Z. Oh, God. <laughs> this is that Dr. Seuss story, isn't it? No, we're going to not touch Dr. Seuss this week with a 10-foot pole. <laughs> oh, thank God. Oh, thank God. <laughs> <laughs> this was a fight between two generations over a rapper. Oh, God. This is that TikTok about Eminem, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's so cringe. It hurts. So let me go back to the start. Eminem was trending when I was in high school, and... Most of us know at this point that his lyrics can be extremely profane and violent and misogynistic. Flash forward to 2021, and this week and last week, Gen Z starts finding old Eminem songs and Eminem lyrics. And they said, we need to cancel Eminem. And millennials try to push back and say, no, you can't cancel our hero. <laughs> One millennial, Cassie Smith 607 on TikTok, did her own rap in support of Eminem over an Eminem beat. And it was so bad. Listen, little kitties, let me make this quite clear. This man was around even before you were here. So what, you're all mad because the man was a lyricist while all your rappers are mumbling gibberish? No, go ahead and shut your mouth. I guess the real test of millennial or Gen Z membership is whether or not you like Eminem. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> oh. He is just, ugh, I mean, the homophobia, right? Yeah. Like the, 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 the use of the slurs that then became ubiquitous in the hallways of the schools. <laughs> I know I sound like an 80-year-old senator on the floor, uh, <laughs> but it really is just that it, it poisoned my childhood, I think. Mm. It really did. Okay. I will say if I'm in a spin class and they play Lose Yourself, I will get a personal record. In that class, mm. I think on that that's bike, what with that the, song. I think that caused the pandemic, though, right? Like him performing <laughs> it inexplicably at the Oscars last year. <laughs> oh, that was awful. <laughs> Anywho, we've spent a lot of time on the Generation Wars and Eminem. Uh, so we're going to stop that right there. And I'm going to say that I don't know who won. I think I did. Uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I, I'm going to cede it to you. I think that's correct. Okay. <laughs> Anywho, thank you both for coming on. Thank you both for playing Who Said That. I appreciate you. Uh, tell our listeners one last time who you are, what you do, and where they can find you. I am Mark Joseph Stern. I cover courts in the law for Slate. Uh, you can find me on Slate.com. 
<laughs> and I'm Madeline Ducharme. I'm a production assistant for Slate Podcasts, working on a new history podcast. I also worked on Slow Burn 4 about David Duke. You can find that at slate.com slash slowburn or me on Twitter at Maddie Ducharme. Coming up, do we really need sports in a pandemic? My next guest says yes, but perhaps not as much as we all thought we would. This message comes from NPR sponsor 3M, who is using science and innovation to help the world respond to COVID-19. 3M plants are running around the clock, producing more than 95 million respirators per month in the U.S. In addition, 3M has also maximized production of other solutions, including biopharma filtration, hand sanitizers, and disinfectants. Learn more at 3M.com COVID. 3M science applied to life. In recent mass shootings, people have been targeted for who they are or who they worship. But on June 28, 2018, people were targeted for the job they do at a newspaper. Listen to the new series from NPR's Embedded about the survivors at the Capitol Gazette. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm Sam Sanders, and I want to right now take you back to just about a year ago. The Thunder in the final 18 will play Utah two more times, and both of those will be here in Oklahoma City. March 11th, 2020, just before tip-off between the Oklahoma City Thunder and the Utah Jazz, something weird was happening at this NBA game. But clearly game right now is a little bit of a delay. The players were about to hit the court. Folks were ready for the game. But then, suddenly, both head coaches and officials formed this huddle. And everyone else was just sitting there, waiting, confused. Even the announcers didn't know what was going on. We don't know what they're talking about. And until we do, we can't report anything. Of course, we now know they were talking about the pandemic. The game tonight has been postponed. You are all safe. Later that night, the NBA would end up suspending the rest of its season. The NBA shutting things down that night. That was one of the first big signs for Americans that the pandemic was about to change everything. Well, a year later, games are being played. But sports maybe haven't been quite the lovely distraction that we hoped for. And things are still weird. Before the NBA All-Star Game this weekend, in 2021, the league's biggest player, LeBron James, he told reporters last month that he didn't even want to play. Pretty much a kind of a slap in the face. Um, and, you know, we're also still dealing with a, with a pandemic. We're still de- dealing with everything that's been going on. And we're going to bring the whole league into one city that's open. Um, I so, called up Jamel Hill to talk all this out. She recently wrote about sports in the pandemic for The Atlantic. And she argues that during one of the strangest times we've ever experienced, maybe America didn't need sports as much as we first thought. I want to talk about so much with you, um, but before we get into anything bigger picture about sports, I got to begin by asking you what in the world is happening with the NBA right now? They're having their all-star weekend this weekend, even as stars of the league like LeBron James say they don't want to do it. And this is all happening in Atlanta after it was first canceled in Indianapolis. What's going on there? Well, what's going on is something that 
we understand is the quintessential American story, which is money. That's what's going on. And, (laughs) you know, it it is nothing says you care about player safety or about setting a good example, like holding an all-star game in a state that, you know, has very lax COVID restrictions and has been pretty wide open from the start. So, uh, yes, this is indeed hypocritical of the NBA. The players aren't into it as they've made it known, but, you know, a lot of this is certainly financially based. Um, the event typically draws in between 60 and $80 million for a weekend, uh, but they obviously won't be able to do that because they're not at full capacity, but they will be able to make good on the TV money. Nobody's trying to give any money back. And so now you have an all-star game. Okay. You know, we're also seeing NBA and NFL and Major League Baseball fans being a little bit ambivalent about whether they want to watch. You wrote recently about how sports fans across the board in the midst of this pandemic have been watching just a lot less sports. How big have these drop-offs been for these professional leagues? Well, for the major events, they've been massive. I mean, we're talking about audiences that have literally been cut in half. Now, to be completely fair, some of it is that the sports schedule is all messed up. So you have the NBA Finals taking place in October. They're not used to being in October where they have to compete with the NFL and they have to compete with network programming Mm. and other things that they're not used to having to compete with. So that was significant. Uh, The Super Bowl was, to me, a really interesting case because you had a dream matchup. You had Tom Brady versus Patrick Mahomes, you know, the quarterback um, of this era versus the emerging quarterback of perhaps this next generation. And they drew their lowest ratings in 15 years. And you look at the NHL finals and the Masters and all these every major sporting event was they saw 40 to 50 percent ratings drops and so people wanted to at first blame the nba's low ratings on the fact that they felt like it was too much said about social justice that was too much of a message Mm. well the kentucky derby was down by like 48 percent, and i don't think the horses were taking a knee so um (laughs) you know so i i think um there is some linkage between this being a psychologically traumatic year for a lot of people and Sports didn't exactly take you away from the trauma of real life because sports didn't feel the same. I think what we all realized is that the fans, the enthusiasm, the rituals, they mean something. Yeah. You know, in your article, the numbers that you run down are just crazy when you see them all together. Ratings for the NBA Finals down 51%. Ratings for the NHL Finals down 61%. U.S. Open, down 45%. Kentucky Derby, down 49 I mean, you've outlined some of the reasons for these drops, which makes sense. But as someone who has been covering sports for a long time, is the depth of these drops surprising to you at all? It's a lot. Yeah, it's, it's very surprising because it is so much. I think... I expected there to be a little bit of a drop, Mm -hmm. but I don't think I expected this just massive falling off. And the worry, if you're professional sports, is that this will get people comfortable not watching sports because at the same time, these massive ratings in sports were dropping. The explosion of streaming went the opposite direction where they got 50% more viewership than they did the year before. Wow. So it wasn't that people didn't want to watch TV. They were actively sports. choosing. <laughs> they didn't want to watch sports. Yeah. Seeing that 
As a sports journalist who understands the incredible, magical value that sports can add to our lives, does that make you sad? Yeah, a little bit, especially when you read, um, doing further research, as I pointed out in the piece, about how things like football and, and live sports aren't hitting Gen Z the same way it hit my generation. They mm. prefer not to spend three and a half hours watching a football game. Mm. They, yeah, <laughs> I must no, be Gen true. Z. Yeah, they prefer, not, <laughs> they prefer not to do that. They prefer, you know, they're, they're much more into like esports and other things that, you know, my generation just isn't into. And so the trend that is the one that bears paying attention to is how many sports out there are getting, their fan base is getting younger and how many are getting older. And the NBA fan base, for example, is actually getting older. Major League Baseball has been getting older. NFL, the average fan's age is getting older. And that's a bad sign because that means you're trending in the wrong direction and that the people you're appealing to are not the base consumers that everybody wants. How much of appealing to younger audiences is going to be stuff that's not about just the athleticism itself? You know, I think we saw last year how the NBA and their stances around racial justice and activism actually resonated with a lot of folks, particularly in Gen Z is a future in which pro sports continue to appeal to younger audience? Is that also a future in which they allow their players to be more political? I I think that's a really good point and a strong one is that to the younger audiences, you know, social justice issues and who the athletes are as people generally matters more to them. And I think Mm. part of this is because they are groomed and have grown up in a social media area where they're used to being exposed to all parts of their lives. And part Mm. of that is that they're very interested in the stances that they take. And, you know, I do think that's part of the shift that we've seen some of these leagues make in terms of being more open to seeing players talk about their um, viewpoints and discussing race and discussing some of the problems in this country because they realize there are a section of people who enjoy that. And I always thought that those people who don't mind it or who are open to it and who kind of like it, that they weren't as represented well enough Mm. when we ever we had those discussions about whether or not social justice issues were hurting the game. And I always thought it was a one-sided perspective in that because – You know, you heard a lot of people bellowing about Colin Kaepernick. But look, I knew just as many people who were saying that they didn't want to watch the NFL anymore because of how they treated Colin Kaepernick. Oh, yeah. And And he made Nike a whole bunch of money because folks were buying stuff, oodles and oodles, because of Colin Kaepernick. Hey, listen, uh, he sent me, um, his team sent me his um, Ben & Jerry's flavor. Wait, you know, he has I'm a Ben and Jerry's vegan. flavor? He does. He has a Ben and Jerry's <laughs> flavor. And I'm pretty much, I'm not vegan in anything. And this is vegan ice cream because he's a, a vegan. And let me tell you, this ice cream is spectacular. Like, what? I killed it. And it's okay. spectacular. Like, I'm not even, I'm not just saying this. It okay. truly is spectacular. And so, okay. listen, they're all kind of takers for that. Like, the merch he puts out, it sells mm-hmm. out fast. Like, this idea yeah. that Colin Kaepernick was some kind of repellent because of his beliefs was a lie. Come and on. so, I think a lot of people um, in the, who are the decision makers realize that there's an element of this that's really cool and really resonates with people. You know, I wondered, seeing the numbers, seeing your writing this week about just the ratings drop, 
if there's like some larger takeaway here about America's relationship with sports, capital S. But then I also said to myself, maybe I'm reaching a little too much. Maybe it's not like maybe it's not like this reassessment happening across the country about how sports fits into like our American mythology. But I don't know if there is a big takeaway about like the story of America and sports in this moment. What is it for you? Well, I I think the bigger takeaway is that we have often mischaracterized the role that sports is supposed to play in our lives. We've mischaracterized it as something that's supposed to distract us. That's something that happens in a totally different place than where we are. And it's all happening in the same place. Sports Mm. is uh, entertainment, yes. Distraction, no. Mm. Because if my back hurts and I turn on a Lakers game, guess what? My back still hurts. So it can't distract (laughs) me that much, right? uh, And also these players um, bring their problems to their work. Like, Like they're going through the same pandemic we are. Yeah, they do. And not only that, sports is not immune and never has been immune from the other issues we're facing in our society. Like I realize the meritocracy myth has been lionized in sports, but sports has a lot of racism. It has a mm. lot of inequality. It has a lot of inequity. There are gender issues in sports. There's misogyny in sports. There's all the same things that we see in other parts of our society. The difference, I think, and what gives sports sort of a unique advantage in our society is that sports is actually something built to bring people together. It's the one thing that we do with each other because we don't do anything else with each other with people of different socioeconomic yeah. backgrounds yeah. or different races. Like We've you can have going to church together. Yeah. We have definitely stopped doing that. And even when we did, let's be honest, churches were pretty segregated. And so, mm-hmm. But a game, you go to a game and it's not that way. And you can have a dude making 50 grand be as big of a Laker fan as a guy making 500 grand. And they will have in common to sit there and talk about LeBron and his greatness. It has a way of pulling people in that other things that we do can't do. But the part that I think that we have not represented as well, or at least not as been as honest about, is how some of these political and social issues mash all up into sports. And um, that and can't be divorced from it. Can't be divorced for it. And it's through the lens of sports that we can actually see how these issues can be addressed or at least discussed in a way that's meaningful. Thanks again to Jamel Hill. She is a contributing writer at The Atlantic. Now it's time to end the show as we always do. Every week, listeners share the best thing that happened to them all week. We encourage folks to brag and they do. Let's hear a few of those submissions. Hi, Sam. This is Sherman in Kentucky. And the best part of my week was that it got to be sunny and warm enough that I got to go out to my little tiny greenhouse and start planting seeds for my garden. And I just don't think there is anything in the world more optimistic than thinking about and planning and starting a garden. Hey, Sam. It's Jackie from Seattle, Washington. The best thing that has happened to my family this week is that my husband finally got orders for the last three years of his Coast Guard career. He's been in for 17 years. We're going to Boston this summer. Hey, Sam. This is Tom from Dallas, Texas. The best part of my week was that I just got paid today for the first time in my first full-time job. With that money, I decided to go walk down the street and 
buy myself some custard because when I was a kid, I always imagined the way I would spend the money that I made was on ice cream. Hi Sam, it's Mary Ellen Giese from Rochester, New York. The best part of my week was that yesterday, my Hochstein youth singers got to sing together for the first time in a year in our Hochstein performance hall. We were spread out 12 feet apart. We all wore double masks and we got to hear each other sing songs we've been working on all year on Zoom. Hi Sam, this is Asia in Balsam, North Carolina. The best part of my week was getting my piano tuned after over a year of waiting for it. I got this piano from a woman from our church whose husband had died about four years ago, and it was his piano from age 16 to age 94 when he died. And his wife was looking for somebody to give it to um, in honor of him, and I was the lucky recipient. Thank you, Sam. I hope you're having a good week, too. Thank you so much for your show. Thanks, Sam. Thanks. Such a lovely selection of beautiful things. Thanks to all those listeners you just heard right there. Asia, Mary Ellen, Tom, Jackie, and Sherman. Listeners, don't forget, you can be a part of this segment as well. At any point throughout any week, just send your best things to us via email. Record yourself on your phone and send that voice memo to me. Sam Sanders at NPR.org. Sam Sanders at NPR.org. All right, this week, It's Been a Minute was produced by Janae West, Andrea Gutierrez, and Sylvie Douglas. Our intern is Liam McBain. Our fearless editor is Jordana Hochman. Our director of programming is Steve Nelson. And our big boss is NPR's senior VP of programming, Anya Grundman. Listeners, till next time, be good to yourselves. I'm Sam Sanders. We'll talk soon. <laughs> 